Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Hello and welcome back to another episode of FNS On Air, the September Volume 118, Issue Number 3 podcast. Eve and Kurt, how are you guys? We're great, or I'm great, I should say. Thanks, Pietro. Nice to see you, even though it's virtually. I'm great as well. Nice to see you both and happy to be back recording. And I'm hopeful that Micah is going to be joining us next month for October. We're all thinking of him. Since we're giving shout outs here in the beginning, I want to put a special shout out for one of our listeners who every time he listens to us, sends me a text message saying we were great. And I love those text messages. But special shout out to Dr. Steve Lindheim, who I think listens to us on his hour long commute in the morning when we come out. Hi, Steve. Thanks for listening. Well, we have another great podcast episode today for you. There's a lot of really good science coming out in FNS these days. We're going to start off with the seminal contribution in this month's journal. And Eve, I think you have something to tell us about ICSI versus IVF or non-male factor. I do. This month's sentinel contribution is intracytoplasmic sperm injection versus conventional in vitro fertilization in patients with non-male factor infertility. And this was written by first author Aya Iwamoto and senior author Abigail Mancuso. This is a SART database study. And the primary objective of this study was to compare the cumulative live birth rate and cost-effectiveness of ICSI versus conventional insemination for those patients who have non-male factor infertility. There were almost 47,000 patients undergoing their first IVF cycle between December 2014 and December 2015, so a one-year time period. Cycles were all linked, so they included the first fresh cycle and then all subsequent FETs in that time period. And cycles that had ICSI split and cycles that had unknown outcomes were excluded. Male factor, donor sperm, and frozen oocyte cycles were also excluded. The secondary outcomes they looked at were fertilization rate, blastocyst development rate, and miscarriage rate. And then in addition to the primary analysis, they did a subset analysis where they looked at blast transfers and for cycles with low oocyte yield, defined as three or fewer eggs retrieved. They did a cost analysis and they examined the additional cost of ICSI in the setting of IVF. The analysis was carried out in two main groups. One group were those who did no genetic testing and the second group were those that did PGT. In both of these groups, ICSI was compared to conventional insemination. In the PGT arm of the study, there were roughly 5,500 patients. In the non-PGT arm, there were 42,000. So what did they find? Interestingly, when we looked at the no PGT group, the ICSI cumulative live birth rate was 60.9% compared to 64.3% for conventional IVF. And this was a difference that did not achieve statistical significance. There was also not a clinically meaningful difference between the groups with regard to fertilization rate, blastocyst development rate, and miscarriage rate. 
In the PGT arm, the ICSI cumulative live birth rate was 64.7% versus 69% for conventional IVF. And again, a difference that was not statistically significant. And they also did not see a clinically meaningful difference between groups with regard to fertilization rate, blastocyst development rate, and miscarriage rate. They then looked at the subsample analysis of patients in both groups with low oocyte yield, and there was also no clinically or statistically significant difference in outcomes between ICSI and conventional IVF. When they did the cost analysis, they found that ICSI was bound to cost an additional $1,500 per cycle, and the overall charges for ICSI were $37.5 million in cycles without PGT. And I I really want to pause and just say, I think this is an incredibly meaningful study and one that I hope helps to change practice patterns away from ICSI for non-male factor infertility. And this is something that we really have started to focus much more on within our own program. I think the data are compelling, and I think that there are two ways to look at this. One, you can argue that we should not be doing ICSI for non-male factor infertility because it doesn't offer benefit. But just to play devil's advocate, I'm not sure I personally believe the other side of the argument, but I'm going to say it for argument's sake. One could argue that the decision to do ICSI was justified because outcomes might otherwise have been worse. And so in doing ICSI, did you bring the success rates up to be equivalent with conventional IVF, especially in patients who have unexplained infertility? My other comment is just on the cost analysis portion, Um, and it doesn't account for those cycles who have failed fertilization. So they looked at the cost of IVF cycles with ICSI, and they compared it to the cost of IVF cycles without ICSI. But what I would have liked to see them do is to incorporate what would the cost have been if if we quote a failed fertilization rate of about 10%, what would the cost difference be if you include a subsequent fresh IVF cycle for that 10%? So I, I still think we would have found that ICSI adds a lot more cost burden for something that doesn't offer more success but I would have liked to see the cost effectiveness portion be a little bit more robust in this study. But I'm curious, Kurt and Pietro, on your thoughts on this, but I really think that this provides lots of compelling data arguing against the use of routine ICSI for all patients. What do you think? Glad we started with this study because I'm sure we could talk about it for a while. Um, I agree with you. This is, a, a you know, again, not a randomized trial, but it brings more evidence to complement the randomized trials that show that ICSI is not helping male factor. And this should move us forward that if we said the randomized trial was too small or perhaps doesn't affect our patients, this is now a large scale study. A couple of important points. This was a huge study. So if there was a tiny difference, you would have been able to find it with statistical certainty and you didn't. So you can be even more confident the difference isn't big. And secondly, You can no longer use the excuse, well, the cost is small, it's just an extra person. This is millions of dollars that are taken away from the healthcare system or the patients paying out of pocket. So it really begs the question again, I've used this analogy, are you a numerator person or a denominator person? Usually the individual patient, we focus on that numerator, that one person, I'm going to do everything possible for you, even if it costs more, you are worth it. I don't disagree with that sentiment, but this is now telling us we also have to think about the denominator. If everybody's doing that, it's a lot of people, it's a lot of money, and ultimately it's just not correct. So I think this is more information to move us in that direction. I mean, I'll share a personal anecdote coming from a place like Wild Cornell, where 
ICSI was performed almost across the board for every patient to now practicing at Boston IVF in Massachusetts, where a state insurance mandate dictates a good portion of our care. It's nice to see the insurers probably being ahead of this than where we are clinically. They, they'll let us know that we can't use ICSI for patients who don't have a male factor infertility. And if you'd like to, it's going to cost the patient additional money out of pocket to do so. So, Eve, after hearing our, our comments, do you have confidence in this paper that um, this is one of the few papers that really should change our practice? I do. I, I actually have a ton of confidence in it. And to your point about power, um, they did an A, like a, maybe you can speak to this a little bit more elegantly than I can. But when they looked at what their power was to detect a difference, their power to detect a small difference was over 99% given the large sample size. So I, I do have a tremendous amount of confidence in these data. And certainly, I think I've been very mindful in my own practice to really limit ICSI to the use for male factor infertility. It is very challenging, admittedly, to not use ICSI for unexplained infertility. And I don't know that in a large-scale study such as this, can we really rely on the SART database for the diagnosis of unexplained infer infertility? But I, I think it really will make me question um, when I recommend ICSI much more carefully in my own practice. When I end the conversation that, you know, this is appropriate in the use of the literature. You know, you hear something once, you file it away, I'll try to use it, I, I still have questions. But we have heard this repeatedly with multiple studies and different journals, and I'm glad this one is in fertility and sterility, that I think the burden of evidence is really pushing us that you should not be using ICSI. There is no benefit for ICSI in non-male factor. And even the argument about that failed fertilization happens so infrequently that I think that's just an excuse we're telling ourselves rather than a real problem. Well said. Kurt, we're going to move on to you. You have something along the andrology theme, but tell us a little bit about geographic variations of semen parameters. So first of all, I want to compliment Eve when she said that this was the sentinel contribution that she had, but actually in, in fertility and sterility, it's the seminal contribution because of the play on words. So this one perhaps should be the seminal contribution because we're talking about geographic variations in semen parameters from data used in the World Health Organization semen analysis reference range. The objective of this study um, with the first author by Ido Pfefferkorn and senior author Michael DeHaan is you know, pretty straightforward. The objective is just to study the geographic variation in sperm parameters from trials that were used to make up the reference range in the WHO 2021 manual. The design is straightforward. It's a retrospective evaluation of that data in that reference manual, and it's dividing up and categorizing patients uh, into um, from 11 different studies that spanned um, five continents and included more than 3,500 participants. Now, I think the results are mildly interesting, and there are some um, geographic variations that are found. So according to this study, the semen volume is lower for men from Asia and Africa, and the concentration was lowest in Africa and highest in Australia. The total modal sperm count was also lowest in Africa. Now, they picked an interesting reference. They said the fifth percentile for that population in any geographic variation, and they compared that across different studies, and they did find variation. I found it actually significant. The fifth percentile could be as low as 12 in some populations or as high as 26 in some populations. So that is a significant variation. 
Now, the conclusion of the study is not rocket science either. There is significant geographic variation in sperm parameters, and it's recommended, or perhaps recommended, that fertility societies should consider adding their own reference ranges on the basis of local experience treatment outcomes. So on first blush, not exactly a controversial recommendation, but I want to dig into this just a little bit because this finding begs the question to me as whether the semen analysis as a fertility test, for example, is trying to define what is really associated with low fertility Or is this just where the bell-shaped curve is on different parts of the world? For example, you know, the fifth percentile can vary so much. So if there really is a threshold below which fertility is demonstrably lower, how are we doing that? Are we trying to figure out what that number is, or are we just trying to take a slice as the proverbial bell-shaped curve, as I mentioned? Now, if it's the former, the WHO threshold makes sense, but if it's the latter, then the authors are saying something about the outliers in different regions more so than human fertility. Perhaps it's not really that interesting a question until maybe you move it over to AMH levels in women. Now, regardless of age, should we be looking at different AMH cutoffs for ovarian reserve across the world, or is there just a quote-unquote threshold for which below a certain AMH level, we're going to have poor responders and perhaps lower success rates? So that's the kind of question I'm trying to, to make. So the WHO manual starting in 2010 attempted to incorporate reference ranges representative of the global population and included data from Europe, United States, Asia, Australia, and Africa. The literature has some evidence suggesting that there is geographic variation. We already know that. In fact, some of the studies are pretty granular and purport to tell you there's differences in states in the United States or in different parts of regions. So whenever you look at a study based on geographic variation, I hope you understand two main points. The first one is obvious. Just because you live in a region doesn't mean you're necessarily sharing that same ethnicity. And the second one, it's not clear that ethnicity is really a biological construct. So we have to be careful that we're just trying to fit data into groups that shouldn't be categorized. Having said that, there may be some issues with this paper alone that I just want to bring out and we can decide what to do with. The study was grouped into five different areas. Europe, which included Denmark, France, Scotland, Finland, and Greece, and Norway, whereas Asia included China and Iran. Australia was alone. North America was alone, and Africa was comprised solely of just Egypt. Do with that as you may. So we shouldn't interpret this as a comparison by country from country. We shouldn't have this study be comparing masculinity or fertility, which I know some people are going to do, that one region is somehow better than another. Instead, I think it just begs the question about the biological question I suggested. Are all men created equal, and is there a threshold for sperm levels that is associated with fertility Or is there variation across the world that could be genetics, or it just as easily could be variability in the way someone does a semen analysis, the laboratories used, perhaps lifestyle. So let's not get too granular into the study. So I think it's fair to look at the inklings, and I'd like the conclusion of this inkling, which I think sums up the study. It says, despite the limitations of this paper, we emphasize that the following WHO manual as a global reference range is essential to keep common global science language and help synchronize research. Perfect. On the other hand, future directions should encourage regional fertility societies to determine their reference limits based on experience, local laboratory results, and treatment outcomes. Further, physicians should be careful further categorize samples into fertile versus infertile based solely on these WHO ranges. 
So unlike Eve's paper that you discussed that had great clinical implication, this one is more let the data flow over you, but it's still, I think, interesting and worth discussing. What do you guys think? Kurt, how do you make sense of 20 years worth of data being included in this and us not discussing temporal trends over this 20-year period with what may or may not be happening with semen parameters globally? Well, great point. I didn't mention that as a limitation, but clearly it is one. Um, And that in itself is debatable, whether it's semen analyses or semen results are changing over time. Mike Eisenberg put a great views and reviews together on that just recently. So it's it's a very complex issue. But you're right. The studies that that undergo a reference manual, when you pull back the onion, so to speak, are not always the best studies, yet we treat them as if they mean a lot. So this study, if anything, just opens up the hood and says, maybe the engine isn't running as as well as we think it was. Yeah, I guess I struggle a little bit in two ways with this. First, were all the methods standardized by which the semen analyses were read and interpreted? And could there be some differences in training among different countries in terms of how to do a semen analysis? And Second, I just really struggle understanding the biologic plausibility of this. Is it nutrition? Is it, I really echo your sentiments about just because you live somewhere doesn't necessarily mean that there are racial or ethnic differences. And what is racial or ethnic differences? Like, I think that many people would argue is more of a social construct than a biologic determinant of health. So I I don't know what to make of this. I think it's It's interesting, but it's one of those things where I nod my head and say, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, again, let me read out my point because I think you said it well. This should not be used to compare races or countries. This That's just not the purpose of this. You can't get that granular. All these differences could be due to laboratory ways, although I'm not sure. Well, maybe one country could have a bias over reading or under reading. And it also could be due to nutrition or lifestyles and other choices. So please don't compare one country to another. Just recognize the main fact, which is there is big variation when we measure semen analysis around the world. So therefore, we need to take that into account when we say somebody is fertile or not fertile. But it's it's worth noting that the way this these studies were done, it's worth a comment, is that they basically took a large number of men in that geographic region that had a partner that conceived within 12 months. They said, therefore, you must be a fertile man. Let's give me your semen analysis, and then let's get up to this 3,500 number. So it's a lot of men that are theoretically fertile, but other than that, there's not a lot of standardization. Okay. There was one way forward that you mentioned that lit a light bulb on me was the idea of a population-specific curve. If you're interpreting the semen analysis, interpreting it against a North American semen analysis versus a South American semen analysis or even a Sub-Saharan African semen analysis, since there is that 5% difference you said as high as 12% and as low as, what was it, 24 25% and that fifth centile cutoff, something to consider. Yeah, I I think my only other point, and I I really don't want to spend too much time on this. We've got a lot of other good science to talk about. But my only other point is, were these a random sample of patients? Were they infertile individuals coming in for semen analysis? There's more questions than answers. Let's, uh, Let's move on. Eve, let's change gears and talk about embryos. Tell us a little bit about euploid embryos and chance of subsequent live birth. 
So this next article is really interesting. It is titled, The Chances of Obtaining a Euploid Embryo and Subsequent Live Birth Remain Consistent with National Age-Based Rates After an In Vitro Fertilization Cycle That Produced Only Aneuploid Embryos, with first author Nola Herlihy and senior author Richard Scott. The objective of this study was to determine the prognosis of patients who had no euploid embryos on IVF cycle number one if they came back to return for a second cycle. The main outcome was the percentage of patients who obtained a euploid embryo. For those who did, they analyzed pregnancy rates and compared to patients who had a euploid embryo in the first cycle. They had 538 included patients with only aneuploid embryos in IVF cycle number one. And what they wanted to do was to determine the likelihood of successfully obtaining a euploid blast and live birth in cycle number two, patients were stratified by age according to SART criteria. Patients were also stratified according to the number of blasts they produced in cycle number one. And they looked at those who had one embryo, those who had two embryos, and those who had greater than or equal to three blasts. A secondary analysis was then performed to evaluate whether the embryos generated in the second cycle had equivalent reproductive potential to euploid embryos from those patients who had a euploid in the first cycle. Of the 538 patients with no euploid blasts who returned for a second cycle, 56% of these patients had at least one euploid blast in the second cycle. Patients who fell into the other 44% who didn't have a euploid blast in the second cycle were older and not surprisingly had a lower AMH level. 12% of patients who cycled again were canceled for poor response. Those who ultimately had a euploid blast in cycle number two had higher estrogen levels, more eggs retrieved, and more blasts biopsied. Not surprisingly, the likelihood of having a euploid blast in cycle number two was higher for younger patients. Patients up to age 37 had an 81% chance of having a euploid blast compared to 25% of patients over age 42. And I think that's a fantastic counseling point. And keep in mind, these are patients that are not canceled and who made blasts. About half of women over 42 who made three or more blasts in cycle number two were found to have at least one euploid. The live birth rate was constant, irrespective of when that blast was created. So those patients that had a euploid blast in cycle number one versus those patients that had a euploid blast in cycle number two, even when there were no euploids in the first cycle, had equivalent live birth rates. Overall, I really like this study. I think once you sit down and you look at it in detail, I think it provides some really digestible information that we can use for counseling. I wish it would have been stratified a little bit more granularly, though. For example, a patient who has five embryos has what chance of having a euploid compared to a patient with a total of 10 blasts? I remember older data way back from reprogenetics that were stratified by age and total number of blasts biopsied. And I used to have a mouse pad that was a chart that I used for counseling a long time ago. And I seem to recall the number that patients who had 10 embryos biopsied were 95 to 99% likely to have a euploid. And so I think it would be fantastic if you could have these data generate a cutoff above which you could call care futile or make concrete decisions on termination of care with autologous oocytes. 
I think the data from these studies are useful, but I really wish they were more robust and more granular. Something along the lines of a calculator where you plug in a patient's age, the number of embryos biopsied, and get a percent chance of euploid in a subsequent cycle. And I strongly suspect if they had higher numbers, which is actually good that they don't have higher numbers because many patients didn't have no euploids and, and return for a second cycle, but I bet if they had higher overall numbers that you'd be able to break the data down, look at it more granularly, and come up with even more statistics that we could counsel patients on. But I think, again, I like the data. I think it provides some good counseling, especially for patients younger than 37, to tell your patient that they have an 81% chance of having a euploid blast in the second cycle, I think is really valuable for counseling. Kurt, Pietro, what do you think? Am I the only one who wants to see what happened to the other 44% who didn't make a euploid blast on their second attempt? No, I mean, I, I I wonder, and again, to my point about, is there a cutoff above which a certain number of blasts where a patient makes that you can say to that patient, the likelihood of actually having a euploid blast at this point is X percentage. And I think because they also included patients who had one blast biopsy, I mean, I'm not so surprised that in a 42-year-old who has one blast biopsy on the first cycle has a 25% chance in the second cycle. I'm not that surprised if you have a lower number of blast biopsy that you're going to get to a euploid. So I read this paper a little bit differently. I thought they were trying to be optimistic. And the point of this paper was that if you had no normal embryos, if you had another cycle, there was a really good chance that you would have a normal one. Then that risk factor, for lack of a better word, was the same thing we already knew, which is how many embryos you're going to make, how old are you, and, and what your AMH level. So I took this as good information that just because you had no normal embryos, you could still consider doing IVF again. I wasn't thinking about end of care. I was thinking this was reassuring everybody that one round of PGT is not dictating futility. No, but I also would have liked to see it as more of an intention to treat, looking at it from cycle start. So at 42, if you're on your second cycle, you have a 25% chance of having a euploid blast, but 12% of patients were canceled for poor response. The authors don't say what percentage of patients moved forward with retrieval, but didn't actually make it to blastocyst phase. So I think, yes, reassuring that if you're 42, you're on your second cycle, you have a 25% of chance of having a euploid blast, but that's per blastocyst and not per cycle start. And so I think that I, I don't want to take away from it. I think it is optimistic. And we all know that one of the biggest impediments to success is patient dropout, right? So patients who continue on in treatment, who continue to move forward, will have a higher likelihood of success because care and success is cumulative. And so I do think that these data are very reassuring in reassuring patients that it's okay to continue care but I always want to know to what end. I currently have a 41-year-old. We've biopsied 14 blasts and 100% of them are aneuploid. And I strongly counseled her against um, further autologous cycles, um, recommending donor, and she wants to move forward. And I have a really hard time saying no to the 42-year-old who makes three to four blasts. But I would love to know statistically what is the likelihood that she really is going to have a euploid. And at what point... Do we call care futile? 
So, but in this paper, I think it would have promoted the patient's request that um, I can go through again, that there's a very good chance that I will get a euploid embryo the next time because I made lots of embryos. So this is the fun part of the science in FNS is that you can interpret it many different ways, and that's why we have discussions about it. Um, so uh, please read the article on your own and draw your own conclusions. I'd love, I'd love if the authors would consider publishing what happens for patients who cycle more than two times the th- three or four or five PGT cycles and look how aneuploidy changes over the course of a handful of IVF cycles. I think that'd be interesting to point to counsel patients because if 56% of patients are going to have a euploid embryo available for them in a second cycle, does that number persist in the third, fourth, or fifth cycle? Is there a regression towards the mean where it goes back down towards that zero number again? Yeah, and I think to the author's credit, they really tried to make this very clean. They looked at cycles where there were zero euploid blasts in the first cycles. And I think the caveat to that is they looked at patients who returned for care in their center, right? So I think if you were to look at it for patients that are banking embryos electively, you could look more longitudinally over time without being restricted by your inclusion criteria. And I think it has a lot of benefit that they were so strict in their inclusion criteria. And I really like that because I think it it's targeted towards a certain population of patients. How do we counsel those patients? But I think it really begs the question over time is, I strongly suspect that patients will regress to the mean of their age over time. And that's what I see in my own practice. And so if you keep cycling, you will eventually regress to that mean. But I think we need more data. So, But that's both ways. So first of all, if someone wants to do that study, we'd be happy to consider it. And it would certainly be in the appropriate journal. And we can discuss it on a future podcast. But regression to the mean means both ways. So someone that um, abnormally got too few is probably going to have a couple normal ones. But the same token, someone that got a, a lot is going to regress back to a lower number. Again, it goes both ways. But I think what the paper, at least to me, said is the mean is the mean. Um, and you can use that on your first try and your second try. We don't yet know about the third or the fourth, but given that the age is similar, perhaps the third and the fourth. Yeah, agree. And I I always really enjoy reading a paper and seeing that I, I took away a different point than you did, Kurt. <laughs> well, let's continue the theme with ART. I have a great paper entitled Diagnosis of Diminished Ovarian Reserve Does Not Impact Embryo Aneuploidy or Live Birth Rates Compared to Patients with Normal Ovarian Reserve. It's really fun for me to be able to share an article written by my new colleagues at Boston IVF. And this article is by Yuval Folks and senior author Denny Sakas. And these guys wanted to basically revisit the persistent question of whether patients with DOR have higher rates of embryonic chromosomal aneuploidy and lower rates of live birth compared to women with quote-unquote normal ovarian reserve. This is something that some of us have both seen in our practice, something that patients ask us about when they're cycling again. So it's an important question that deserves attention, which is why I think we're seeing more of these papers come out, particularly in FNS. There have been studies in FNS that have associated DOR with reduced oocyte quality, inferior embryo morphology, and higher rates of first trimester loss compared to women without DOR. But all of them have some methodologic flaws and I think personally limit my enthusiasm for some of these findings. We all know that age, chromosomal oocyte errors, ovarian response are all intertwined biologically, which means having a true assessment of chromosomally unbalanced embryos in patients with DOR is pretty confounded inherently. It's tricky. This study is unique in that they tried to undo a little bit of that confounding using some clever statistical methods. 
So what they did was they looked at patients who are 40 and younger, who are undergoing IVF with the intent of doing PGT, who had at least one blast available for biopsy. And they had some clever statistical techniques and some clever subgroups that I want to mention. So the first is that they segregated patients into DOR or not DOR based on two definitions. Either the physician assigned the definition, having cumulative knowledge of their AFC, their day three FSH, their AMH levels, or they used kind of a strict arbitrary cutoff of AMH less than 1.1 directly pulled from the medical record. They also did another subgroup analysis of patients with a history of poor ovarian response. So patients who had cycled previously and had less than five oocytes retrieved. Their outcome, their primary outcome was aneuploidy rate. And they compared this after propensity score matching on age, BMI, and the year in which the cycle was performed between patients with DOR, not DOR, and then again between patients with that porovarian response and non-porovarian response. And as our teachable stats moment of the day, we've talked about propensity score matching before, but as a refresher, all propensity scoring is is a statistical technique where you construct an artificial control group by matching each patient with a control group of similar characteristics. And this, in statistical manner, allows us to reduce the effect of confounding when estimating the true effect of a treatment or an intervention. Now, they had another important secondary outcome that I also want to mention before I tell you what they found. They looked at miscarriage and life birth rates. This is something that, again, has been borne out in FNS literature, human reproduction literature. There's some suggestion that patients with DOR have a higher rate of miscarriage. So they also wanted to look at that beyond just aneuploidy, yes, no. So in total, they had 383 patients with DOR and 143 patients with a diagnosis of poor ovarian response. And they were able to match them one to two for DOR and one to four for poor ovarian response. The average AMH in the DOR group was 0.9 and the average AFC was 6.2. When comparing DOR and non-DOR after propensity score matching, they found that the aneuploidy rates were similar, 42% versus 41.7%. Again, in women under 40, mean age of 36 in both groups after propensity score matching. The same was also true for poor ovarian response. Aneuploidy rates were 41 versus 44%, no different. With regard to their secondary outcome, live birth and miscarriage rates were no different, again, after propensity score matching. There was one interesting thing that they did report on that I would like to mention, particularly in light of our previous discussion, was the number of women with no euploid embryos available to transfer. Here, it differed significantly between the DOR and the poor ovarian response groups. 19.3 versus 10.3 for DOR and non-DOR, and 26.5 versus 13.2 for poor ovarian response versus non-poor ovarian response. So in summary, what this paper is telling us, again, adding to the body of literature, is that it does not appear that a diagnosis of DOR or poor ovarian response is associated with an increased rate of aneuploidy if you're performing PGT. However, let's make sense of all of this in light of the literature. I think there continues to be the ongoing question as, is the ovarian physiology and biology of these patients with a DOR diagnosis inherently different, such that it's leading to an increased rate of chromosomal missegregation, the steroidogenesis in the ovary is different, and it's affecting how the luteal phase is supported and potentiating an elevated rate of miscarriage. I think this paper doesn't answer that, but again, I think is adding with clever statistical methods, careful group definitions, some support that probably not. It looks like they're more similar than different. And the last important caveat with this paper is these were only patients who made at least one blastocyst. 
This is not the average DOR patient who fails to make blastocysts. Those patients are never included in these studies about aneuploidy because nothing ever gets to biopsy. So when you think about these studies, think about, again, like Kurt said, are you a numerator or denominator person? Are you including all of the patients who should be in the denominator in the denominator? One of the inherent limitations of these PGT studies trying to assess is DOR associated with aneuploidy is some patients just don't make blasts, so are included in your denominator. Kurt, Eve, I know you guys have had patients with DOR who are thinking about doing PGT. Are you counseling them any differently that they can expect a higher, lower, or no different rate of aneuploidy with their PGT? No. I mean, I, I think I'm famous for saying that age is king <laughs> and that I really, what I've seen in my own practice, and I think what's supported in the literature, is that aneuploidy rates tend to be correlated most strongly with age and that AMH will predict response to stimulation, but will not predict euploidy, nor will it predict live birth. I think that's nicely said. I think we have confabulated these two things together for a long time, and it's becoming clear that they really are different. I still don't understand why some women make more follicles than others, but it seems to be when you do make an egg from that cohort of follicles, the chance of it being euploid or aneuploid really is dependent on your age when you made it, not how many were in the cohort to begin with. Age is king. King is supposed to be a good thing. <laughs> Maybe I should switch it. My feminist side is saying that I should start saying age is queen. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt, let's keep going on the theme with ART and tell us a little bit about interpregnancy intervals in women conceiving with and without ART. Sure. First of all, I want to compliment again. There's another study out of Boston IVF. They're, they're doing fantastic work. I'm glad it's getting published. I'm, I'm glad they're, they're spending their time to not only analyze their own data, but in this case, analyzing others' data as well. So congratulations to Yaman Shah. And again, Denny Sakis is on this paper. Way to go, Denny. Productive. And uh, senior author, Thomas Toth. So this paper is the effective interpregnancy interval on preterm birth and low birth weight in singleton pregnancies conceived without assistance or by infertility treatments. Again, sounds just the paper is just like it sounds in the title. Um, the objective was to determine the association of interpregnancy interval on perinatal outcomes and whether this was influenced by the mode of conception. So in the obstetrical literature, I think we kind of knew there was this U-shaped curve where a very short interval was bad and a very long interval is bad. What this is, is doing is extending it to conception with ovulation induction and ART. So they used the Center for Disease Control Natility National Database, and they performed a retrospective cohort. What they did was uh, kind of elegant. The way I describe it is going to sound easier than it actually was, but it, but it is elegant. What they did was they found people that had a, what they called an index pregnancy. They could study this pregnancy and the outcome of this pregnancy, but they only included people where they had a previous pregnancy. So that pregnancy is a less of interest. It's just the inclusion criteria to get into the study. And then they studied this pregnancy compared to that one in terms of how long the difference was between the two conceptions. So the index pregnancy is between 2016 to 2019. It's a large study because it's national database. There's more than 32,000 children conceived with IVF, more than 23,000 with ovulation induction, and a mere 7 million conceived without medical assistance. So the main outcomes were, again, they used a reference range of quote, normal pregnancy uh, interval, and that's between 12 months and 18 months. And then they compared that to less than 12 months, 
Let's focus on that for a second as, as being the short interval. And they found out that maybe as hypothesized, the risk of preterm delivery was um, higher if you had a short interval in a conception without intervention or assistance and also with ovulation induction. Interestingly, IVF did not have an increased risk of preterm delivery. And then when they looked at the second outcome, which was low birth weight, but all three modes of conception in this case were associated with an, um, a higher incidence of low birth weight um, in a short pregnancy interval. So what can we say about this study? Again, envision this U-shaped curve that I'm drawing and you can't see because I'm on a podcast, but basically the left side of the U is um, elevated because in the early pregnancy, then the, the bottom of the U is the normal pregnancy, and then it goes up again on the other side with a long interval. And again, the U-shape is seen in five of six analyses with only one exception. And to the author's credit, I don't think they say too much about that IVF is somehow different. They think it's just, you know, the normal variation you might see when doing a study like this. So what are the benefits of the study? It's a large study. It's a um, national database. It confirms what we knew in an obstetrical population and extends it to the ART population. It does have a little bit of uh, limitations to it. Please don't overinterpret this. The study did not take into account, for example, breastfeeding. It didn't take into account whether you had a miscarriage. It didn't take into account on whether you had multiple births. So that just isn't addressed in the study. The limitations are perhaps you could poke holes in it that you don't know as much information as you might want on the earlier pregnancy. You don't know how that one was conceived, but I think that still doesn't matter all that much. So the final conclusion is that what we thought we knew in general obstetrics, that a short interpregnancy interval leads to perinatal abnormalities, is extended into ART and ovulation induction. And the clincher conclusion for us is that because we're dealing with ART and the ability to freeze embryos and no one we're putting them back, there's very little excuse for having a very short pregnancy interval in our patients now that we know this information. But boy, do patients come asking for it, though. Well, I now you agree. can push back. I know, we do. <laughs> so in our, in our practice, we really encourage an 18-month interpregnancy interval, and we will not do treatment when that transfer is sooner than 12 months from delivery. So we're pretty rigid about it. And I think that these data are a good justification for it. I think we've always sort of known that, but now having the data to really hand to the patient and show and say, look, our outcome of choice is healthy mom, healthy baby. And we really want to optimize not just your likelihood of pregnancy, but also the likelihood of having a term delivery. So I think it is multiple data points that we use to, to really provide the, that best care. But it's challenging. I mean, oftentimes patients argue my insurance is ending, I'm moving out of state, I have XYZ, and it is this balance between paternalism and patient autonomy. But I, I really feel strongly that you're right, there's no excuse to compromise outcomes. I mentioned briefly that it didn't take into account breastfeeding. So I'm going to ask you guys for a straw poll here, uh, unencumbered by data. What do you tell people when, when they just finished breastfeeding or they haven't finished breastfeeding and they're ready for their next transfer? How long do you tell them they need to stop or do they need to stop? <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to go on a limb because there really are not data here. I generally tell patients two menstrual cycles, return of two menstrual cycles in somebody who was previously ovulatory. I don't have a justification for it other than to say 
that when that baby latches, even though the longer you breastfeed, the less you feel those uterine contractions, but we know that there is some uterine contractility with nursing or with breastfeeding. And so my justification for it really is we don't want to knowingly implant an embryo to have uterine contractility take place and expel the embryo. Second rationale is that we want to, excuse my lack of scientific wording here, but we want to refresh the endometrium. (laughs) We'd like to see it shed and not just one, but two periods. And again, that's in somebody who's anovulatory. I don't necessarily make them have a bleed, but I would wait until they've completely weaned and are no longer like snacking or night nursing or whatever uh, we do as moms for comfort, I would have them wean completely. But again, full disclosure, no data. Yeah, I agree. And I tell similar recommendations, but the reason I brought it up is we can maybe take care of two problems at once. We can we can tell people breastfeeding is a good thing. You could continue a little bit longer because we're not going to help you get pregnant until at least a year. So maybe we can, uh, again, take care of both problems. I like the resetting the the endometrium, Eve. I I extrapolate a little bit my counseling from the miscarriage literature. We traditionally told women to wait three months or three cycles before trying to conceive again after a loss. And I think a lot of data has come out recently to suggest that you could probably start to conceive right after that first menstrual period. And to me, if we want to reset the endometrium after miscarriage, if it's good enough after one cycle, I think after breastfeeding, it's probably good enough as well. So I, I counsel patients to wait one cycle before trying to conceive again. So again, I'm really pleased this paper got it and in fertility related. This is the kind of immediately clinical apical information that I'd like to see the site of day. It doesn't maybe it just confirms what we already thought, but the idea that there's data behind it, I think, is a is a help. And congratulations to the authors. I'm going to take us home with something pretty different. We're going to be talking about uterine transplantation, and I'm actually excited to talk about uterine transplantation on the podcast because you don't see many of these papers come through. But I vividly remember being a Northwestern medical student and being at the Hawaii ASRM in 2015, and Matt Brandstrom was talking in one of the big plenary halls about the first successful live birth. This is a year afterwards. And inside the hall, there was a wonderful lecture recounting a scientific journey that began in the late 90s, building evidence and the data needed to support all of the things that would come to fruition in 2014. However, outside, there was actually a sizable group of people in protest, protesting this unique innovation in our field. And there were arguments at that time that there are limited resources, equitable access to this treatment, safety concerns for moms and babies, which I think are all solid. And particularly in a country where gestational carriers are legal and available, even more relevant. But one argument that you didn't hear and you haven't heard for the last seven years since this group has been reporting their data is just a lack of transparency and scientific rigor. This group has done the right thing time and time again and have published the results of their data. And this month's article is actually the definitive study endpoint for them. They're looking at their first nine patients who had undergone uterine transplantation, attempted conception, and then had their uterus removed to report on what actually happened for those women who started and completed the cycle of treatment. So here's what we know, and it's a small group. So of the nine live donor uterine transplants that they're reporting on, seven were successful. Two of them resulted in early graft failures requiring hysterectomy. Of those seven women with a successful transplant, six women delivered nine infants, with three women giving birth twice, all after frozen embryo transfer without PGT. 
So if you're keeping score, and I know Kurt is, that's a cumulative live birth rate of 86% and 67% in the surgically successful and the performed transplants respectively. But this wasn't all a walk in the park. It took several embryo transfers to get these patients pregnant. Two patients got pregnant with their first transfer, but there was one woman who required six, one who required eight, and one who required 11 embryo transfers to conceive. The overall clinical pregnancy rate was 32%, and the overall live birth rate per embryo transfer was 19.6%. Once pregnant, these patients had a host of obstetric outcomes that I think are important and people have raised concern about. So all of these deliveries were by C-section. The median gestational age of delivery was 35 weeks and three days. This is a little bit by design. All the deliveries were scheduled cesarean sections with the goal of delivering them in the 35th week. But during the course of the study, they pushed that up to 37 weeks, which is probably why you see that trend closer to 37 weeks towards the end of the study. And I suspect we'll see this go even higher as comfort level increases with managing these pregnancies. But one concerning thing in these pregnancies is that three women developed preeclampsia. So that's a 33% rate of preeclampsia in a very young, healthy cohort of women who are in their late 20s and early 30s. And there was only one case of PPROM amongst those nine pregnancies. Of the pregnancies, three patients underwent a C-hist during their second delivery. And the other three underwent a scheduled hysterectomy three to six months after their first delivery. The other question that you get with uterine transplantation, and one of the concerns that was raised very early is, how do these kids do? Well, there was a nearly 55% rate of RDS. I suspect a lot of this is prematurity. Again, the gestational age was 35 weeks, and it's not uncommon to see that. But aside from RDS at birth, it appears that their birth weights at the time of delivery were appropriate for the gestational age. And even postnatally for the two years of follow-up they had, these kids followed normal growth curves. The authors didn't stop there, again, commending them on their rigor here. They looked at both short and long-term psychologic outcomes for both donors and recipients and reported normal levels of anxiety, depression, and relationship dissatisfaction among both donors and recipients. So I know this is a charged issue, but I guess I want to ask Kurt first, since your center has performed uterine transplantations, does this change how you view uterine transplantation in terms of its safety profile and success profile? I think the data is wonderful that it's out there and published and it can inform you, but we're still talking about minuscule numbers. So trying to interpret this a little bit too much would be a problem, but it's got to be published. And what did I learn from this data? The big deal is in the uterine transplant and the removal of the uterus, the number of embryos transferred and the number of embryo transfer of procedures seems to be a minor player in this. So you still either believe that this is a good use of resources and acceptable morbidity, or you don't. Yeah, I think I fall on the don't side of it. I think it's nothing short of a miracle. I think it's amazing. Uh, I really, I'm so torn. I, I do feel like there are a lot better ways to utilize healthcare dollars and resources particularly in the arena of infertility when so many people don't even have basic coverage to spend exorbitant amounts of dollars on this. I'm I'm very mixed and I'm torn. Um, I also feel like pregnancy is not an experience per se. Um, it's a means to accomplishing a goal of having a family, but it's I can't even begin to put myself in the shoes of somebody who was born without a uterus and how much angst and um, suffering that person has. So I'm definitely torn. I commend the authors on 
being fully transparent, publishing what they're doing. I too remember sitting in that giant room um, in Honolulu and I was just astounded by the beauty of what they were working towards. But I am, I'm mixed on it. I'll play devil's advocate because I'm actually very pro-uterine transplantation and have been pro for some time now. I view it as our field's moon program. It's our moonshot. We didn't need to go to the moon when we went in the late 60s, but on the way to getting to the moon, we learned a lot of things about a lot of things. Some of the technology that came from that process, I think, is still paying dividends today. The minute you get in a GPS in your car, your ability for your cell phone to work, all of those things are either directly or indirectly related to having that moonshot. And I think on the way to getting to uterine transplantation, we spent, and we, I say, Matt Brandstrom and his team spent two decades learning about ischemia time, reperfusion time, what the appropriate cocktail of medications is to suppress a solid organ in the pelvis. These are things that had we not been going towards this, we would have never have learned. So I think data for science for science's sake is good. And I think we need some of these things in our field. I think they're healthy for the field to have these things that make the field bigger and wider and, and hopefully more inclusive eventually. But understanding that these are short-term gains, I think, in, in science and eventually people will be able to afford this. It will get safer. It will get cheaper. Um, I think those are all things I, I hope for, but I, I like to see these things happen in our field. This is a field that needs these kinds of things. I just hope that one day men can carry pregnancies, but I guess that that's never going to be possible without uterine transplantation. I think Rick Paulson is quoted somewhere in the lay press um, saying, sure, I think they could. I don't see why not uh, when asked to comment on this when I think he was ASRM president. I think that's a, a well said. I, I think I'm kind of in the middle. I think that you know, there's going to be a lot of collateral benefits to this transplantation. But I do worry about actually how many people are going to need uterine transplantation. So again, it's a lot of technology for a pretty small sector, but I'm proud of the people that are doing it. And we say this from a position in North America where gestational carriers are readily accessible and still unaffordable, but in the better part of the rest of the world, gestational carriers are illegal and people don't have access to it. And if you're looking for the only treatment for absolute uterine factor infertility, it's uterine transplant or nothing. I will just say, just to kind of jump in here and give a thought that has always bothered me about uterine transplantation is the fact that the resources and funds and initiatives that go into it for reasons that Dr. Barnard said, like how many people are actually going to need it, could be better utilized elsewhere for other access to care issues that are very prevalent and still going on daily, you know, in every region across the United States. And so that part just bothers me. And if you say they could get cheaper and whatnot, that would be great. But that being said, there's still so many other things that those resources could be used for. And that's just the one thing I think about. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Simone. And I'm so glad that you chimed in. What I will say as the president of the Chicago Coalition for Family Building to date, we've raised about a million dollars and we've spent about a million dollars um, in helping couples have babies. And we have 69 live births from $1 million. And so when I look at the dollars spent per child versus the utilization of those dollars elsewhere, it, it is a little bit painful to me as somebody who deals with this every day in my practice and then every day as the president of an organization that really tries to help fund infertility treatment for so many. And we can't afford 
to fund nearly as many couples as we would like. So that's that is the lens that I see this through as well. Um, and I I guess for that one patient, it's the numerator versus the de- denominator. Kurt, it's that's you, the theme of the episode. Do you pour all of your resources into the one, or do you try to help the many? And I, I think in an ideal world, we would have the ability to do both. And I think that's a lot of where my internal struggle comes in. And no doubt it's mind-blowing and it's amazing, but I also really, I struggle with it. So thank you for at least having an intellectual conversation and many thanks to the authors for your phenomenal work in this and for a great, you know, into fertility and sterility for publishing this. It's, it truly is miraculous. I think we're going to be debating that for a long time. Eve, it's been the history of mankind. Do we, do we go for innovation or do we go for public health? And um, we, I mean, I don't know how to resolve that debate for this issue or others. I, th- I think we can have both and should have both. Right now, there's over 40 live births from uterine transplants worldwide and over 100 uterine transplants performed. I'm curious to see where that number heads over the next in the coming years. Well, thanks again for all of you for joining us for another episode of the FNS On Air podcast. Thank you so much for our loyal listeners. And I'll put a plug in since it is the beginning of a new academic school year. If you have fellows, residents interested in the field of reproductive medicine, this is a great way for for them to stay abreast of what's going on in our field and get the latest and greatest science from fertility and sterility. The conversation always continues afterwards. You can check us out on social media. We have a brand new LinkedIn page, but also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can keep tabs on all of the great science that's in the rest of the journal, as well as the FNS family of journals. Kurt? really do appreciate the feedback. So, you know, please drop us a line, let us know what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, but most importantly, listen. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing everyone in Anaheim. All right. Till next time. Goodbye. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.